ever feel like your life is out of control? Or do you feel like you're losing control of your life? It might be uh, of your, uh, a particular situation in your life. It might be family drama. It might be parents. It might be kids. It might be uh, a job situation. Do you ever feel like you are losing control of your life or a situation in your life or your mind? There was a story uh, some time ago, 2009, a man by the name of Jose Martinez uh, was on a ride at Disneyland when, uh, without warning, that ride malfunctioned, leaving him stranded. The ride was, it's a small world. For those of you that have not had the pleasure of riding this ride, let me tell you about this alleged uh, ride. It's, it's kind of known by people who have been on it as the worst five minutes of their entire life. Disneyland is the happiest place on earth, so they say, but this is the corner of the world where the soul groans in despair, the full realm of emotions. Uh, Just to catch you up to speed, if you haven't uh, heard about the ride, it's basically five minutes of you going on a journey while uh, uh, children-looking marionettes and puppets sing to you the same line over and over, it's a small world after all, over and over and over for five minutes. Uh, Jose Martinez was on this ride as it broke down where he was stranded uh, for 30 minutes as the song continued to play over the loudspeakers. Now, to exacerbate the situation, he was disabled, so he could not leave the ride at any time. He also had a, a history of high blood pressure and panic attacks so when the, 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 the professionals got to him, they, rec- uh, they were recorded as saying that it took him about three hours to medically stabilize from this out-of-control situation that he found him in. Now, when I read this story, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry, but how many of you have been in a situation similar to that? It might not be exactly that, but you can say with me, I feel like I am on a ride that is terrible and I can't get off it. I feel like my life is out of control and I can't turn it down. I feel like my family is falling apart. I feel like my life is falling apart. My job feels like a roller coaster where on the loudspeaker is a song that I cannot stand. And it's playing over and over and over and over again. How many of you would say, even if it's not as, quite as terrible as that situation, my life feels like a roller coaster that's gone out of control? And what do we do when life is out of control? I don't know what you do, but I try to take control. (laughs) I try to do all that I can to to gain as much semblance of control as possible. I grab for power and control to see if I can can kind of uh, uh, keep things in a way that would feel right to me. God's people in the Old Testament had a way of dealing with things that were out of control as well. One of those things was fasting. Uh, If you're not familiar with fasting, fasting was a type of prayer. It's one of the most intense types of prayer. It involves not eating food. Uh, And this was the, the, the method of the people of God for dealing with a life that was out of control. Now, Contrary to popular opinion, fasting or or praying without food for an extended period of time is not manipulation. This is not a form of manipulating God and twisting his arm, you know? Like, hey, God, you weren't listening to me before, but now I'm starving, so you have to take note of my prayers, right? It's not that. 
It's not, God, I've been asking for a brand new car all of this time, and you, I hope you're listening now because I haven't been eating for three days, right? right? Not fasting. This isn't something that we do to God, but a, a picture of fasting in the Old Testament was rather something that you did to yourself to posture yourself to seek after God. Anytime fasting and prayer comes up in the Old Testament, it was often the people of God humbling themselves. It was getting themselves out of the way so that they could seek the face of God. And it didn't matter. It, it was usually in the context of a life that was spinning out of control. It could have been the whole nation just going awry. It could have been, uh, it could have been enemies circling the city and threatening to destroy their, their life. It could have been uh, simply the whole, the whole people of God just falling off the wagon and forgetting God. And there would be one person that was like, we need to fast and pray. We need to forget about ourselves and turn our attention to God. And so fasting was less something that you did to God and more something that you did to yourself so that you can hear from God and seek God. And at the time in the Old Testament, this was a voluntary practice. There was only one time in the year, the Day of Atonement, where it was, it was uh, required. But for the most part, it was just people who were moved by their hearts to chase after God in an intense uh, and more poignant way. But over time, like a lot of good things, uh, it began to be systematized. It began to become more, uh, more regular and familiar to the people of God. They started to uh, include it, not just at the Day of Atonement once a year, but also uh, during various observances during the year. Uh, up until the point where the Pharisees, who pop up in this story, started doing this, uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 12, tells us that they did it twice a week. So now you've got a practice that's actually really good. It's powerful. Jesus said in one of the Gospels that the heart or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, your heart, if you have been born again, if you have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, your heart all of a sudden has new desires. You want the things of God. You want to do the things of God. You want to chase after him with your whole heart. The problem is, you're not just a heart. You also have a body, you have emotions, you have a mind, you have a social circle. And Jesus is saying here, the heart desires the things of God or the spirit, or another way of putting it is the will. But your flesh is weak. And the flesh is obviously your skin and bones, but it also refers to the whole of your body. It refers to your decisions, it refers to your patterns, your behavior, your habits, your appetites, your cravings. Jesus is saying, hey, the spirit wants the things of God, but the body with its appetites and its behaviors and its decision making and its, its, its patterns are stuck in an old way of doing things. And there's no restraint there. It's weak. And because of its lack of restraint, it actually ends up overpowering the heart. And he was saying this to tell us we need to, we need to train our bodies to follow a heart that has been renewed in the image of Jesus Christ, in the image of God. And so fasting was a way of doing that. It was a very good and powerful thing. A type of prayer that pushes the flesh down so that the heart can be present to God. But like all good things, it can, it can also be turned into a means of controlling your situation. And it's not just fasting, right? It's all the good things in life. It's reading your Bible. It's joining a church. It's being involved in a church. It's uh, experiencing good relationships. It's 
the fun things in life, it's the good things. Here's what I've, I've learned uh, from passages like this, is that it's not often or it's not always the bad things in life that shake us up. It's the good things that we have turned into ultimate things that threaten the life of the, the, the follower of Jesus the most. It's those things that tend to be the most subtle that creep in and threaten to uh, uh, take over our world. It's the things that we enjoy, the things that were good for us, that we have turned into the throne of our heart. We have turned good things into ultimate things. And think of that in your own life. Think of the good things that God has given you. And think of the ways that we can easily turn those things into our, way, our, our means of controlling life. Controlling God, controlling others, controlling ourselves. And this was what it seemed to be for the Pharisees. Now we're picking on the practice of fasting, but it could be anything. Now it's not bad that they were fasting twice a week. Regularity is a good thing. But they lost something in the regularity. Matthew chapter 6 verse uh, 5 tells us uh, that when the Pharisees fasted, it wasn't for the right reasons. They weren't doing it to get closer to God. They were doing it to be seen by men and women. Uh, in other words, they had, lost, they had lost track of God to such an extent that all they had going for them with their, their righteous practices was to control what people thought of them. So they would fast for people to look upon them and be like, oh, you're so pious and so righteous and so holy and so intense. You're such a spiritual person. You go to church all the time. You have your life together. That is great. Oh, thank you. And you get that wave of, of affirmation that wells up in your heart. And you have a little more control in a life that is out of control. And this is how the cycle continues. It's not often bad things, right? It's the good things that we have turned into ultimate things. The things that we use to, to bring some semblance of control in our life. At the heart of the matter, for me, is I'm a control freak. And I have a tendency to use good things. Even things like reading the scriptures, even things like going to church, even things like enjoying my family to control some aspects of my life. It might be uh, whenever you open up the Bible, for example. You're not doing it to commune with God. You're doing it to, to get God's attention. Maybe if I read, uh, I, haven't, I haven't read the Bible for three weeks, you might say. Maybe that's why God is distant. I better crack that thing open so he'll visit me. I want to pray, but am I saying the right words? Am I putting them together in a, a holy phrase that will catch the ears of God so that he'll listen to me? Or you might even go so far as to say, well, I don't think God listens to me, but other people that I'm praying with, they're listening to me. Perhaps if I pray in such a way, it'll impress them. Maybe it's not uh, inherently spiritual. Uh, for example, I remember some time ago, I think I was in the grocery store, and my, one of my, my children grabbed something off the shelf and wanted it, and I, I, it was not the right thing for them to have. And so I told them that they couldn't, they couldn't have that, that thing at the grocery store, and they just lost it, right? Tantrum, in the, tantrum at Trader Joe's. Now I got down on my knees, and I gently tried to walk through with my child an emotionally stable way of speaking to my, my three-, four-year-old kid uh, about why this wasn't good for them and why they could not have it as the whole building is watching me. And it didn't work. 
All the things that I read in books just did not work in the moment that I needed. And I felt myself just getting a little excited inside. I was trying to control the situation. What I wanted was for my kid to stop screaming at me in front of all these people. But it wasn't for the right reasons, right? It wasn't because this is truly the right decision for my child and I care for them. It wasn't, oh, this is a learning opportunity for my child and for myself. I'm going to take the opportunity of it uh, to be a dispenser of God's grace. No, it wasn't that either. It was people are watching me and if I don't have control of this situation, they're going to think I'm a bad dad. And I'm a, you know, I'm a pastor, like, I need to be perfect at fatherhood, and so this is a case in point. Like, if I, if I don't get this down right, everything is out of control. Those are the situations, at least in my life, where I, I go off the grid immediately. Like, there are a lot of good opportunities in that situation. My child, whom I, I desperately love, an opportunity to be a, the mouthpiece of God, an instrument of God's grace, But in that moment, I'm like, people are watching me, and I'm going to be humiliated. It's not often the bad things. It's the good things that we turn into ultimate things in order to control the situation. The Pharisees are control freaks, too. Listen to what they say in in, in verse 33. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. (laughs) First of all, I love this line. I love that that's what this group of people thinks of when they see Jesus' followers. Like, hey, we're like stodgy and religious and we are busy and do a lot of activity, but your disciples are having fun. Like, that that doesn't sound very spiritual, right? Your your disciples are eating and drinking and they're merry and they're having fun and they're talking with one another. Like, what kind of weird religion is this? You're delighting and having fun. I I think people should say that about the church, right? I think, the people, I, I think people around us should look at the church and see these people walk with Jesus. They're not, they're not they don't live lives uh, of, of discouragement all the time. They're not always in this place of, of burdensome uh, wreckage. They don't look like they're riding on it's a small world like 24 hours a day. They look like people that spend a lot of time eating and drinking with Jesus. We're busy doing stuff, but your team is having fun. Why? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, Jesus was working outside of their normal categories, and it was a little disconcerting to them. It was a little concerning and uh, perhaps alarming. And at this point, Jesus takes a learning opportunity to teach them something about the kingdom of God. And he does it with a single question. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Ever been to a reception where there's no food? Yeah, I have too. It's called a funeral. Jesus is saying this isn't a funeral. There's times for funerals and there's times for weddings. There will be a time for a funeral, but this is a wedding. And he calls himself the bridegroom. This is astounding. Because this is the type of language that God, the Father, uses to refer to himself. For example, Isaiah 54, God, uh, the, the prophet Isaiah says, uh, refers to God, our maker, as the husband of his people. And over and over, this language of bridegroom is used to refer to God. Jesus is now forming this question in such a way as to show the people I am the bridegroom. He is making a claim to being God, one of the many that he will make as he interacts with people. Do you know what he's doing right here? 
If I could rephrase this in such a way as to say, hey, I know that life is out of control. I know that it's spinning around. It's suffering entropy. It's a, it's a, a, a vast array of chaos. But I am the God who is in control. And I'm right here in your face. Jesus who formed the worlds with his word. Who keeps the worlds together, as Colossians says, by the word of his power. In his presence, in whom all the demons of, uh, of the heavens and of hell tremble at his word. In his, uh, in his presence, as we just read in, uh, in chapter 5, fevers leave at his word. Demons are cast out at his word. People come to life at his word. People who are mired in shame are raised to life at his word. And he's right there in the middle of all things saying, I am in control of everything. And right now, I'm in your living room, bro. You don't need to fast. Fasting comes from a longing heart that wants and desires something better. It is the longing heart crying out for release. And there will come a time for that, but right now, the release is right in the living room. Jesus Christ in flesh and blood, sitting right in front of you, the God of all control. It doesn't matter if your life is falling apart, if God is in the midst of your life. It doesn't matter if things look like they are in disarray, if the Prince of Peace is in your mind. It doesn't matter if you struggle with anxiety if the Prince of Peace is the one ruling over your thoughts and your heart. Jesus is saying to a group of people, hey, listen, there will come a time for fasting, but right now, it's a party. Because at this moment, at the birth and life of Christ, the kingdom of God has broken through darkness. It's broken through a world that is out of control. Jesus doesn't stop there. As he says, hey, I'm the one that you need, and I'm right here. He says, there's, there's going to come a time where the bridegroom, look at verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then my disciples will fast. And I love this, because Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say on one hand, oh, you, you have to fast just like the Pharisees. Find somebody's spiritual journey and copy them, because that's your way out. Nor does he say, hey, stop doing it. He actually assumes that his people are going to fast and pray. He just doesn't, he doesn't get into the nitty-gritty details to spell out a checklist of things that we do. Rather, he shows us the why behind it. And he points to himself. Fasting is about the bridegroom. Prayer is about the bridegroom. The gathering of the church is about the bridegroom. Our generosity, it's about the bridegroom. He is now recalibrating the way that people view things to be about himself. And he's saying, hey, listen, you don't need to do it now because God has broken into our world. Here I am. But there will come a time where the bridegroom is taking away. And he's probably referring to the cross. When he will die on the cross, rise from the dead. And at that point, and, ever, and, and after that, until I come back, you will fast again with longing. You just won't do it like the Pharisees did it. You won't do it to control the situation because if you're honest with yourselves, you're out of control and life is out of your control. You're going to fast and pray and seek my face as people who have recognized that they are not in control. You're going to surrender it. In the birth of Christ, God broke into our world, but at the cross, God breaks up the powers of darkness in our world. 
And so now we can fast, we can pray, we can seek his face, but we don't need to do it as control freaks. We don't need to live our lives in such a way as to say, I am doing this because I, I, have, this, I have this little plot of land that I call mine and I need to make it perfect. I need to bring everything under my control. I need to, jot, I, I need to uh, cross my T's and dot my I's and I need everything to be in order and only when it's in order will I have peace of mind. No, you won't. Your only peace of mind will come when you relinquish control over your life and surrender it to the God of control. Jesus would say this elsewhere, this counterintuitive idea of the kingdom, that instead of what the world teaches us, that we we have to struggle for power, reach out to get ours, climb the mountain, attain success, exercise control over others and ourselves, Jesus comes along and he says, like he often does, he switches things on its head, and he says, those who try to save their lives, or if I can paraphrase it, those who try to control their lives will actually lose control of their lives. Those who give up everything will actually find what their true life was supposed to be about. The gospel of the kingdom is not how much control we can gain gain over our lives, but how much of it we can surrender to the king of kings. And Jesus doesn't just stop with, this is a better way to live. This is a better way to live. Stop the rat race, stop jumping on the hamster wheel, trying to get your life together. Instead, release it to me and you'll find true life. He isn't just suggesting a better way. He's saying, this is the only way. And he does it with this word picture, this parable. I just want to read this parable again, verse 36 and 37. He's, he tells him a parable, and he says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, it'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And what is he saying? This is a parable, right? Whenever you're reading a parable from Jesus, you don't want to, you don't want to pull out all sorts of stuff from the details. Parables are meant to be simple. They're meant to give you one thing to chew on. What is he saying here? One thing is not compatible with another thing. He's not saying new garments are better and older garments are, are awful. He's saying, he's using a word picture here to say that certain, certain things are not compatible together. Then he goes into another word picture. He says, uh, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What's he doing? He's saying the same thing in a different way. He's saying one thing is not compatible with the other. And he's using that to open our minds to the way that the kingdom of God works. You know why? Because as soon as I said, hey, you need to relinquish control, some of you are like, I don't know about that. Uh, maybe I'll relinquish control over an area of my life, right? I like, I'll do that. Jesus can come along for the ride of my life, right? I like some of the things that he's saying. Some of the things that he's saying are so attractive and incredible, but the other things that Jesus says are difficult and controversial. And to be honest, I kind of want to just nitpick some of the stuff that he says. Jesus is saying one of those things is not compatible with the other, He's giving us a picture of the kingdom of God. He's saying, all of this is yours for the taking. 
Every promise in God is yours in Christ Jesus. It's for you. Step into the rhythm of the kingdom of God. It's for you. But realize this. The kingdom of God is breaking in and it's a new way of thinking. And it is not compatible with the old way of thinking. It is the best thing you have ever experienced in your life. But it's going to jostle your feathers a little bit. And there will be times in your life where you're like, oh, this is so hard to do. I don't know about this. I'm afraid. I want to compromise. And Jesus will say, you need new wineskins. Throw the old one away. You need new categories. Get rid of the old ones. I'm doing a new thing. Step in completely. And yet the temptation will be, and I think this is what verse 38 uh, 38 means, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he will say, ah, the old is good. I think Jesus is pinpointing. There will be some times where we're like, ah, I've been, doing, I've been doing it my way for years, and it's working fine. I'm a control freak, and I like it. And there will be the tendency in our hearts to, to attach ourselves to the way that we've always done things, and Jesus is calling us out into the deep. And there will be times in your life where you're like, oh, like Peter, just wanting to step out of the boat into the water where Jesus is, but saying, oh, but it's water and I'm heavy, you know? Uh, Is it okay if I just kind of put most of my weight on this foot in the boat and I'll just like tickle the water? Is that cool? I'll tickle the water. And you can can use my, my wagging foot to do your thing. And Jesus will constantly be reminding you, no, I want all of you. I want all of you. I want every part of you. I want your job. I want your ambitions. I want your desires. I want your fears. I want your mistakes. I want your setbacks. I want your imperfections. I want the things that keep you up at night. I want your desire to control everything. I want it all. I don't just want the good side of you. I want the bad side of you too because I'll meet you right where you're at, but I won't leave you where you are. But in order for you to go on that journey, you got to get rid of the old wineskins and you got to step into the swell of God's kingdom. And it will be scary. And it will be challenging at times, but it will always be good because God never lets his people down. And there will be those times you just want to wag your foot and keep all of the weight on this foot, on the other foot, but your system is not compatible with his. Your system is not compatible with his. And there will be good things in your life that you want to turn into ultimate things because you want control over the way things are. And God is calling you to give up those ultimate things, to step into a new thing so that he can take you on the ride of your life. But for us to experience and realize that, it's going to have to start with what we've been talking about for weeks, surrendering the things that our heart grips so tightly, the things that we trust in more than God, the things that we look to more than God, the things that comfort us and bring us security, that allow us to say, I'll I'll do the God thing, but it's really this that I have over here. Jesus is calling on you. He's saying, give it up. Because at the end of the day, you're ripping yourself off. I uh, I think that's what God was referring to when in one of the first of the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. In another section of the Old Testament, Jesus describes himself as a jealous God. But he's not jealous for the reasons that we're jealous. 
because he's missing out on something. He's jealous because he's, he loves you. And he recognizes that you were made for him and for him alone. And he sees some of us ripping ourselves off with lesser things. I just love that quote from C.S. Lewis. I've used it from time to time where he refers to people as half-hearted human beings uh, caught up in uh, sex and drink and ambition among so many other things when, the, uh, when eternal joy is available to us. He likens us to children playing with mud pies when joy eternal is available to us. We're truly ripping ourselves off. And yet Jesus calls us to relinquish our grip on such things and experience all that he has. You shall have no other gods before you. You know what that means? It doesn't mean for us thousands of years later that we sit at the feet of golden statues and worship them. It means that we have a tendency to take good things and make them ultimate things because we are control freaks. God wants to save us from the the, the fake gods because they do not have the capacity to satisfy what you were truly created for. I don't know what that is for you today, what's hiding in the dark corners of your life that you're hanging on to. You know what it is, or maybe you don't. Maybe you're not even aware of what's holding you down. But God is, and God has a tendency to reveal things to people who are willing enough to stop what they're doing, to look upwards at him and say, speak to me, Lord, I'm listening. But are you ready to step out of the boat when he starts whispering? I'm going to ask Cody and the rest of the team to come out here. We're just going to spend a, a, you know, we're going to spend some minutes responding to God in worship. And when we do that, it is for the purpose of reflection. So that we don't just run out of here and grab lunch and forget or miss out on what God is attempting to do by his wonderful grace in your life and in your heart. As we do it, let's just slow down today. and Take some time to sit at the feet of Jesus, who's reaching forward his hand to anybody who listens and saying, like he did to Levi, like he's doing to Peter, like he's done to all of these people before, and he is doing thousands of years later to you now. Hey, You've been trying to manage your life. How's that been going? I have a better way. Follow me. What's in your life right now that's keeping you from getting out of the boat? Do this with me. You don't have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps or get rid of said thing or fix your life. Just start, start with a small act of faith. Recognize what it is and bring it to Jesus and let him take care of it from there. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love you, uh, as your word says, only because you first loved us. You were the one who pursued us. When our eyes were blind and our hearts were closed off and our ears were deaf, by the grace of God, you stepped into our mess, into a world that is, feels like it's gone out of control, into lives that feel like they're out of control. You jumped into our mess and you extended a hand grace and love I pray that now by the power of your Holy Spirit you would grab our hand 
and that you would enable us to say yes to the things of God. Most of all, not just the things of God, but to God himself. Ask that where there needs to be healing, you would bring it in a deep and profound way. I ask where there is grief, discouragement, depression, and anxiety, you would meet us in the brambles and in the thorns. I ask where we're simply too busy and distracted to think about such things, you would stop us in our tracks and get our attention. And I pray that our lives would forever be altered, that we wouldn't just get a taste, but that we would be able to say, I want to get rid of these old wineskins, this old garment. I want to step fully into the swell of what Jesus is doing because I trust you. God, only you can do that in our hearts. May you do it according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.